in our quest to understand the universe, we look out at the stars, galaxies, and the universe beyond Earth. We do this with telescopes, observatories, and all different sorts of tools to measure the universe. That's the observational side. Then, on the theoretical side, we have models, we have our theories of how the world works, of how the universe works, and we try and bridge these together. We try and tie together theory and observation. But astronomy and astrophysics as a science isn't based just on these two aspects. There are two fundamentally different types of astronomy in addition to theorists and observers. There are instrumentationalists who build, manage, and operate these instruments instruments that allow us to make these measurements. And there are people who specialize in data analysis, in computational astronomy and astrophysics, where they take these enormous suites of data and either look through them themselves or program artificial intelligence to look through them. I'd love to dive into one of these lesser known realms on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. When it comes to the universe, yes, we have the observations we collect, this full suite of data we've gained from looking at the universe. But the only way we gain that knowledge, the only way we obtain that data is through the instruments themselves. And I'm so pleased to welcome to the show astronomer Jess Seanhut Stasek, who is a telescope specialist and a telescope operator for UKIRT, the UK Infrared Telescope. Jess, I'm so pleased to welcome you to the show and thank you for joining us here. Hey, good to see you too. Yeah, good to see you virtually. You know, how how <laughs> is it down there in Hawaii? I hope you uh I hope you have far fewer covid cases than we do here on the mainland. We actually do. I mean, it's still, you know, still shouldn't take it lightly, but we are seemingly not safer over here. So, we just got some reimposed restrictions though, island to island, so no more traveling for the moment. Well, good for you for staying safe where you are. So, when I was first introduced to astronomy, you know, I, I was introduced to naked eye astronomy and then like the idea of looking through a small telescope. And then I realized as I got older, like, wow, like these modern telescopes, they are enormous. And you, Kurt, is older than you are. I believe it's uh, it's something like 41 years old. It's yeah. been up there for a very long time. And yet it's still incredibly impressive. It's what, like three and a half, four meters? meters in diameter, but most importantly, it measures infrared wavelengths, yeah. not visible light ones. Yeah, that's definitely the most important thing about UCA. We have the ability to, yeah, to see in the infrared, which is, it can be, you know, that can be a difficult area, a difficult band to look in because you've got a lot of extinction coming from the sky. Um, you have a lot of background, kind of background from that. Um, so most infrared telescopes are space telescopes, generally. Um, but thanks to some really great infrared detectors, thanks to some really great technology on that end, we, we can do really awesome astronomy in the infrared. And that's really important. You know, we have a lot of uh, seeing different things in the universe in different wave bands is kind of a fundamental, um, kind of a fundamental, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, it's super fundamental is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, that's wonderful. Because when I when I think about this, right, I think about our visible light wavelength range, like what we call the optical in astronomy. And I think about how, wow, like all of what we see from the reddest, faintest reds to the to the to the ultraviolet to the to the edge of the violet and the ultraviolet, that is a tiny, tiny wavelength range that goes from 400 to 700 nanometers, uh, going backwards from violet down to red, uh, and that's it. That's all we can see. If you want infrared, yeah, sure, start at that 700 nanometers and now go all the way through the near infrared, the mid infrared to far infrared until you're talking about like millimeter wavelengths. So you're going from nanometers to microns to tens of microns to hundreds of microns all the way to millimeters. And I think you can you can count all of that as the near, mid, and far infrared. That is that is a huge set of wavelengths. We're talking about something that's like a thousand times broader than the visible part of the spectrum. Um, if only you went to space and you had a telescope that was cooled to absolute zero with like this panchromatic detectors, you can you could detect all of them at once. But you can't really do that from the ground, especially given that we have an atmosphere, the atmosphere absorbs and emits infrared, and also it radiates at a real temperature that interferes with infrared astronomy. If I were looking at this as sort of a naive theorist, which I am in many, many ways, I would look at this and I would say, yeah, don't even bother with the infrared from the ground. Yeah, the, the infrared detectors are actually fairly, um, in the grand scheme of things, like fairly recent, because like you said, the detectors themselves have to be, you've, you know, you've even got the heat of the telescope being an issue. So you have to cool these detectors down an awful lot and uh or more than the visible at least but i mean i think yeah it's a really interesting kind of if we're, especially if we're talking about mauna kea especially if we're talking about the telescopes up there is that if you put them all together you've got these incredible wavelength ranges. you know you've got the submillimeter with jcmt you've got um kind of submillimeter to radio with SMA, you've got the visible light telescopes. And then some some of the others do push into the infrared as well. You have Keck uh, has um, NERC2, the near infrared, a near infrared camera, which I've used in this great instrument. Um, and that has a, a bunch of, uh, we're moving on off for the light uh, kind of wave bands for a second, has a bunch of really cool stuff going on with it. Like um, a instrument, uh, uh, instrumentalist friend of mine, Charlotte Bond, uh, led a team that built the uh, new pyramid wavefront sensor on Keck, and that is very cool. It's part of the adaptive optics system, um, which uh, for people who may not know what adaptive optics is, it essentially corrects for the, the turbulence in the atmosphere. Um, and the the pyramid wavefront sensor is really cool. And I, I was in an office with her for many years, so I got to learn all about it. <laughs> but, um, it, ha it uses a pyramid to separate the light and correct it in several different um, apertures, basically. One of the things that that's always impressed me about adaptive optics, because when I when I sort of started, um, you know, studying astronomy and physics back in the 90s, I was thinking like, wow, like adaptive optics, huh? What a cool idea. I yeah. wonder if they'll ever be able to make it do what they dream of it doing, because the idea always just seemed, uh, well, you're, you're British, so I'll say cuckoo bananas, right, to me, that it was sort of like, 
it, it was sort of like this idea that like, okay, well, what do we do? Well, okay, the light comes in and if we were all in space, we could just see the light as it was without it being wrecked by Earth's atmosphere. But yeah. we're sort of like at the bottom of the atmosphere. And so it's sort of like looking up at the sun from the bottom of a swimming pool that you've got this like just all this awful stuff. It's turbulent. It's moving around. It's got a density. It refracts. It reflects. It absorbs. It does all of these nasty things. Plus, there are particles up there, and they they move the light around as well, too. And there's this jitter, and so things seem to move around, and they get distorted, and you get multiple images, and the light gets broken up, and blah, blah, blah. And somehow... The idea of adaptive optics is that, well, what we're basically going to do is we're going to take this light and all the incoming light, we're going to like split it into like two halves. And they're not exactly halves, but close enough. We're going to split it into two halves. And that first half, what we're going to do is we're going to take it and we're going to say, okay, I know that there is a point source in this light, whether it's a star or an artificial star that we made with a laser guide uh, hitting the sodium layer like some 60 kilometers up. Um, and so we know there is a point of light up here. There's a single point of light and this is what it looks like. So we know the properties of this light and wherever we see that through the image, wherever we see the light with those properties through the image, we know what point source that's coming from. So what we're basically going to do is we're going to make a reverse funhouse mirror that's going to take this distorted light that we know has to be a point and we're going to make the mirror necessary to turn this messed up fun house, big jawed, big eared, tiny bodied light into the normal star, the normal body that we're looking at. And then we're going to take that crazy mirror shape that we made and the other half of the light, we're going to smash that incoming light against that mirror shape we just made and send that basically unfun housed light back to us and that's adaptive optics yeah it's basically that that's the that's the process of the correction really well explained <laughs> um and what i was saying before with uh, the pyramid wavefront sensor is it's basically like that the wavefront sensor is as you were saying the kind of sensor that detects what the the shape of the wavefront is coming into the telescope because what you would want it to be is just straight parallel right but that's not what you get because of the attenuation in the atmosphere so that was yeah that was a bit of cool instrumentation that um i didn't work on at all because i'm i'm not actually an engineer but um or an instrument person really uh but got the privilege to hear a lot about um but adaptive what's really cool about adaptive optics i think is there's so many different uh i think i'm a bit biased because yeah the the uh the institute for astronomy in hilo where i worked um for my masters um has a lot of instrumentation folk uh, so, and a lot of it is adaptive optics. So I kind of got to hear a lot of the different ideas and I did, uh, I used a lot of data in my masters from a instrument that's now on the, uh, UH-88, the University of Hawaii 88, uh, telescope, 88 inch, okay. uh, called RoboAO, which is the robotic laser adaptive optics system. And what's really cool about that particular instrument is you've got your, um, your detector, your camera, and it actually has an infrared camera now as well, um, and your adaptive optic system in one, and it's robotic. So you can get like 200, 300 stars a night, you know, which is, is really awesome. Because if you look at some of the bigger 
adaptive optics systems like the one on Keck, like you've just got, you've got much more overhead time. I think it's really cool because you can, if you think about adaptive optics in different ways, you can get different kind of trade-offs. You know, you can, uh, if you can do it a bit quicker and your resolution may be not quite as good, but you'll get all these different stars and you'll have a really good, um, and you can get like good signal to noise that way. Or you can, there was another, uh, there's another kind of, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, there's another kind of um, idea that I've heard a lot about, which is the the ground layer adaptive optics, which is where you kind of, uh, so the the first layer of attenuation you get, the first layer of kind of mess that you get, uh, the ground layer is often the worst one. So there's ways to concentrate more on that layer and not worry so much about the upper layers and things like that, which is better for kind of wide field astronomy, where you want to get a big kind of a big uh, range on the sky, a big field of view. So it's really cool what you can do with adaptive optics. No, and this is you sort of telling us uh, something that that maybe some of us would have intuited, but others wouldn't, which is that adaptive optics is not the same uh, on every telescope. It's not like you can just do this blanket thing and this same technique that works for, for example, an infrared telescope isn't going to work the same as for an optical telescope or that the same techniques that are going to work for a telescope that is designed for narrow field deep imaging is not going to be the optimal technique for a telescope that uh, is like a high cadence, sorry, short observing time, uh, taking many different images over a wide field part of the sky. Um, you're going to use different techniques for that, and you're going to use different uh, different instruments for that because you want to optimize your observations um, over a different set of parameters. Exactly, because it all depends essentially on what you want to look at, right? Which is, again, why I think the telescopes on Mauna Kea as a whole is, oh, you know, that's that's a good point to make, actually. The the fact that, uh, you know, one of that's basically the benefit of one of the big benefits of Mauna Kea is you're above the inversion layer. So you, you know, you get less, um, you're going to get less jitter in the sky. You're going to get less mess uh, as a function of just naturally being high up. you know? Yeah, and it's, because it's a combination of factors, right? There were really only, I... I I don't like to talk smack about different astronomical sites. Um, if if, but but I'm going to a little bit right because because basically there are a few things that are going to make your observatory more or less successful. Um, one of those things is okay. We want to be as high above sea level as possible because basically the Earth's atmosphere, you know, I think most people, they think of the Earth's atmosphere as like, oh, yeah, we've got the atmosphere and it goes from about sea level to about, you know, 60, 62 miles or 100 kilometers up and then we're in space. And that is a terrible way to look at the atmosphere because um, the atmosphere realistically is um, it it has this tremendous gradient where basically if you go uh seven miles or about uh, or about uh, 11 kilometers up, you're going to be above approximately 80% of Earth's atmosphere because the particles in Earth's atmosphere are concentrated in that lowest layer. So when you go up to the top of a mountain like Mauna Kea, which is, I think, 13 or 14,000 feet above sea level. Uh, it's 30,000, Jeff. Okay, um, you're you're basically saying like, look, I'm I'm above slightly more than fifty percent of the particles in Earth's atmosphere, which means that there are far fewer particles that are distorting my light. 
you also want the airflow where you are to be laminar, which is smooth airflow rather than turbulent or irregular airflow. And you want the air to have low moisture content and to fall in a certain temperature range. So air temperature, air stillness, the laminarity of the flow, and a small amount of air um, as well as, you know, being above the, the cloud line really helps. Um, you know, that's, that's sort of what makes an observing site ideal to put a telescope or a suite of telescopes in. And as far as I'm concerned, if we were just going on astronomical merits alone, um, and I'm sorry, there's one more thing. You want to be close to the equator. Being close to the equator is important because there are things that happen in the northern hemisphere and the southern southern hemisphere and if you are at a high latitude in either direction you're basically cutting off a large fraction of the sky whereas if you're close to the equator over the course of a night or over the course of a year you can pick up almost the entire sky so i think based on those criteria i would say and you might agree you might disagree that the number one site for astronomy in the world is mauna kea the t summit of mauna kea the um the big island of hawaii has is the best observing site in the world by all of those metrics the second best site i would say is probably there's a mountain range in chile called the andes and they have various peaks over there in a large plateau mm -hmm. that i would say that's probably the second best site for astronomy and then you have places like uh the canary islands in spain yeah, yeah. um that you know that that has a lot of the good characteristics that we like but it's also at a lower elevation and a and a greater latitude um and you start seeing drawbacks in that third tier i think there's a clear number one in mauna kea a clear number two in the chilean andes and then you know you have a site like the canary islands in spain which can make a big case for number three but i think there's a substantial jump between that first tier the second tier and everything else yeah i'm definitely i'm definitely a obviously Mount Kea bias because I live here. <laughs> um, and it's also, you know, it's got such an incredible collection of telescopes. Like it's, it really is just, in my opinion, the best place to do astronomy in the world. But then, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm dreadfully biased about, about that. Uh, but you're right about all those different, all the different uh, metrics. Um, and essentially, I guess for people who maybe don't uh, think about all those different factors, like it, 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 it comes down a lot to a value that we call seeing. Um, which is essentially a number that we can, it's uh, measured in arc seconds, um, uh, your distance, uh, your angular distance on the sky um, between two objects that you're trying to look at. So for me, um, I really care about this because a lot of uh, stuff I do kind of in my research is to do with um, binary stars. Binary stars come in all shapes and sizes basically, but the, the kind of basic uh, vibe is that you have multiple star systems. So uh, binary is obviously two, but multiple star systems are really common as well. Um, and actually, binary star systems are kind of more common than single stars in a lot of senses. Um, and these can be broken up into kind of a number of different categories. So you have your coincident binary, which isn't actually a binary at all. It's just a kind of a background star. So you'll be looking at um, kind of a star in your field of view and there'll be another star that looks like it's right next to it but actually it's in the distance 
oh so this is like uh when you look at the big dipper or the plow because you're from the uk right so if you look at the big dipper or the plow and you look at the uh handle of that constellation uh one of the stars there is named uh mizar and if you take a look at mizar through any magnification aid sometimes if it's dark enough and your eyes are good enough um you can even see it with your naked eye that it's actually two stars right that it's mizar and alcor um those stars they're not related to each other they're not bound together they're not part of the same star system they're just they happen to be in the same part of the sky where it looks like it's a binary system, but it isn't really. It's just that's an example of what you'd call a coincident binary, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's there's coincident binaries. And then there's also uh, you're going to get your binaries that are actually um, uncoincident, I guess, like uh, gravitationally bound. Uh, they either form together or they've ended up together somehow and they'll orbit each other or, you know, there'll be a mutual orbit going on. Um, and they also can come in a number of flavors. So you can get your um, kind of visual binary, which is one that you can see using, using it. Actually, this is probably quite a good explanation of different kind of, uh, different kind of instruments and their uses, because you can have uh, visual binaries, which are the ones that you see through a pro the process of direct imaging. So this is when you use your, um, you basically, you use your standard kind of cameras and you look at them and you say, okay, there's my star there's another star. And this is where seeing is very important because if your stars apparently on the sky, are, you know, an arc second between them, if you're seeing, if your uh, mess in the atmosphere is greater than or equal to one arc second, you're not going to be able to resolve those two stars. Like you were saying about Miser is you have Miser mirror. <laughs> you will um, not be able to, to resolve them. You'll see them as one star, right? So, there's those. Uh, and then as you get closer in and you, in terms of how close the stars are to one another or how close they are in relation to how far away they are from us, um, you wouldn't be able to see them at all with a camera and you're going to have to use uh, spectroscopy. Um, and what you can do with spectroscopy is how I kind of, when I explain this in schools, is I kind of think of it as you're, you're kind of smelling the star, right? You're kind of seeing the elements um, that the star is made of. And they correspond to different to different wavelengths. So if you have uh, sometimes if you have two stars, those wavelengths can be shifted um, by the movement of the stars in a process called redshift or Doppler shift. But but it does it does make a, a redshift for one and a blue shift for the other relative to each other, right? It's sort of like imagining a uh, a, a contact juggler with one hand with two balls in their hand and they're uh, and they're making them go in a big circle, right? If you take a look at this, these sets of balls going back and forth, uh, one of them will be moving relatively towards you. The other one will be moving relatively away from you, which means if they're at the same distance and moving at the same speed, except for this relative motion between them, you'll be able to tell looking at the spectral lines that you say, because you break this light up into individual wavelengths, whether there's one source or two sources or even more than two sources where where this light is coming from exactly so these are still gravitationally bound binaries they're just uh, observed in a different way um and they have you know there's different things that you might find from those binaries and there's also different parameters from those systems you know that are that are relevant so um 
yeah, there's a lot of work that can be done with binaries. There's a lot of important stuff that we can learn about the systems generally, but also about how the stars affect one another. Um, and even in coincident binaries, like I did um, some work uh, at UH Manoa, like when I was doing my master's with um, Dan Huber and Christoph Baranek about looking at stars that are um, astro-seismic. So these are stars that um, have a variable pulsation um, and they'll have various modes of pulsation. And it's essentially like the, um, I want to say the heartbeat of the star. That's untrue because there are actually stars called heartbeat stars, but <laughs> no, but this is like, look, the, the earth has earthquakes, the moon has moon quakes yeah, and stars have star quakes too, right? Astro seismology is a real thing. Yeah, exactly. And it's actually an incredible, incredibly precise way to determine different parameters for your stars. So you can have like, it can determine density very accurately, which is a really important parameter. Um, and what, uh, so what I was working on was um, the Kepler mission, the space mission to look for um, Earth-sized planets, um, actually got some really good uh, astro-seismic detections because you've got um, kind of light curves, you know, these, these uh, plots of flux over time that are showing your um, variation in light to detect transits from stars will also pick up variations in light from astro-seismology. Um, and when these this data was looked at, it was found that actually some of them weren't pulsating in the kind of the, the large amplitudes that we would expect for that kind of star, or in fact, they weren't pulsating at all, which is just bizarre, right? Because then your, your star's gonna fall apart. Um, so what I did was I looked at for binaries because the Kepler pixels are really big, they're four arc seconds across. So if you have another star falling in that pixel and adding flux to your light curve, uh, you're gonna have, you might drown out the oscillations, right? Yeah, it's pretty hard to look for planets when you've got an extra star in the way, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. and I mean, that's also an issue, right? There's been work done on, actually, this was one of the, uh, a really good paper by the RoboAO team. They did a whole collection of papers um, about how your extra star you know, falling into your Kepler pixel can under, uh, result in the underestimation of a planet radii, right? Because you're getting the radii of your planet from the transit curve. Um, so if you have extra flux added in there, your radius of your stars, uh, your radius of your planet is going to look a lot less. So yeah. Oh, I see. I see. Because you're basically saying like, okay, um, my my template here is basically designed for one planet moving in front of a single star. And that's what I expect my flux dip to be. But if I'm actually measuring a flux dip and there's contamination because I have a second star in there, um, I'm I'm going to come away with the wrong estimate for the radius of this planet. Absolutely. Which is, you know, a giant pain in the bum, basically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you want to get it right. I remember, uh, for those of you who are uh, fans of going back through our podcast archives, a few months ago, we had uh, Dr. Jesse Christensen on the podcast, and she's a uh, an exoplanet scientist, uh, I believe, with... Uh, Oh boy, I don't even remember if it's NASA Ames or JPL, but uh, but she works at Caltech and she is a great astronomer and she uh, and she told us that uh, you know I asked her about this false positive rate of Kepler detections because I was like you know when Kepler goes and it looks for these it 
gets a signal anytime it sees something that's that it flags as interesting you know it says like hey there's a signal over here and fully half of these signals that it flagged as this is a candidate exoplanet turned out not to be exoplanets at all they turned out to be a specific type of binary system called eclipsing binaries and I asked her, like, was it disappointing to realize that, like, oh, like, basically, like, you had to throw away half your planet candidates because they were eclipsing binaries. And she explained to me two things that I think were brilliant. First off, don't be sad that 50% of them were false positives. Be happy because only 50% of them were false positives because before Kepler, like 90% of them were false positives and that we can do better now is because of the science we developed with Kepler. But also don't be sad because these eclipsing binaries, you know, it's the old saying that one astronomer's noise is another astronomer's data. And people who study binary stars, especially who specialize in eclipsing binaries, this is just bonus data for them. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, eclipsing binaries are awesome. Because, yeah, your eclipsing binary is essentially a, uh, if you're, if you're a, I guess, if you're an exoplanet scientist, is just a, st a star masquerading as a planet, you know, in the light curve. But you can pick them up because you have, um, uh, they often have a very big uh, secondary transit dip uh, when one star goes behind the other. Right, wow. right. So you see just that enormous drop in flux because you normally have two stars, but when they're both lined up, even if there's only a partial overlap, you're going to see all of a sudden the star appears to get fainter. And in fact, if one, if I don't know what the way to put it, if you have stars of different temperatures and the hotter star goes behind the cooler star, you're going to see a bigger dip in flux than you see when the cooler star goes behind the hotter star. So you're going to see this periodic set of dips that, you know, you get two dips of different magnitudes with each one. That's that's to me like that's the classic surefire sign of an eclipsing binary. You're also going to get, I mean, you're going to get a bigger transit dip generally because the the radius of the star is going to be bigger. I mean, you're going to, yeah. Generally, a star is going to give off and hence have more light blocked when it gets eclipsed by another star than when it does by a planet, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So eclipsing what? by is really cool. But that's just, yeah, that's just another kind of way of, that's, uh, I think what's important to remember about eclipsing binaries is that there's nothing different about them in their in their term in kind of how they orbit or their um, in the system's makeup. It's all about our line of sight. Like it's all about the direction in which we're looking at that system. And this is this is because when something moves relative to our line of sight. So basically, you look out at something, and that that direction, that imaginary line that connects you and the thing you're looking at, that's your line of sight. And things that move along that line of sight, things that go away from you or towards you, you can see that part of the motion. That part of the motion is what shows up, as you say, in spectroscopy when you sort of when you smell this object. You're sort of smelling like, is it moving close to me? Is it moving away? From from me, like on top of whatever cosmic motion there is, um, what sort of internal motions does it have that cause it to make those motions? What you can't see 
are those side-to-side -side motions. You can't see it move uh, in the plane that's perpendicular to your line of sight. We There are only very few examples, and they're mostly very close, fast-moving stars that we can detect what we call their transverse motion at all. In general, for objects in the universe, line of sight, good, transverse, bad. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, you've also got your... Uh, your inclination, which can kind of um, is hard to determine and can and can mess things up. You know that can make you miss miss things or mischaracterize things. Yeah, if things are if things are tilted to you where they're not edge on and they're not face on, but they're sort of tilted at an angle, there's a um, well, I guess the word we use in astronomy or science in general is we say there's a degeneracy, which is you know okay, we know there's the mass and we know there's um, the period and we know there's some angle, but we don't know the angle, and that's why I think a lot of people need to appreciate that there are all of these uncertainties that you see when you have like, okay, this planet has a minimum mass of such and such. And that's really saying like, okay, we know it goes behind the star and we know it passes in front of the star and we know that this much of the light is blocked, but we don't know how perfect the alignment is. And so we don't know the exact mass because this thing could be tilted. And if it's more severely tilted, then maybe it's higher in mass or if it's less severely tilted, maybe it hits that minimum mass. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So like, it's just pesky geometry at the end of the day. Yeah, and that's, I think, that goes back to the point of what you design your instruments to do, right? Because you you sort of say, okay, what do I anticipate is going to be out there in the universe? And I want to design my instruments so that they can give me the maximum amount of information with the current technology that we have about those things. But also, I want to give myself... I don't even know what to call this. I'll call it maybe discovery potential. You mm -hmm. want to give yourself that, hey, if we run into something that's unexpected, that isn't what we expect to see, that isn't explicitly what we're looking for, um, do we have enough of a general purpose instrument, of a general purpose observatory that we can find and extract and learn about this, uh, this weird thing that we weren't expecting to find? So you actually are headed out tomorrow on an observing run for whatever headed out means in the in the time of COVID. Um, so you you are also a telescope specialist, which basically is a synonym for telescope operator. So when you go out on your own observing run and you're the telescope operator, um, like what are you going to be doing tomorrow? Like what does that look like? So that's, that's different for every observatory, of course, but for UKIRT, um, we're fully remote. So I work from an office that's at, uh, um, on a Hoku street in, in Hilo, which is basically where all the kind of, um, headquarters of the telescopes are apart from Keck and CFHT. They're up in, uh, Waimea, which is kind of a Northern town on the big Island. Um, so we are actually right now we're based out of the East Asia observatory, which is the um, observatory that also houses uh, the James Clark Maxwell Telescope. Um, uh, but we're actually moving in a couple of weeks to be in the IFA building, um, all to do with kind of funding and partners and, you know, who, who's in charge. <laughs> um, so we're fully remote. So that basically means I get to work and um, I open up the telescope and everything and I can see, you know, everything I need to see from 
um, that office facility. So I have eight big screens. The top four are kind of my weather parameters because obviously I'm not going to be able to open if it's um, really humid. Or I had a I had a a night uh, last week where it was. Um, yeah, like crazy humid. It was like 86%, which is way above our limits. So I, I couldn't open for that. Um, and kind of the other, you know, safety parameters. That's less about being able to observe and more about being able to keep the telescope safe. You know, you don't want water to be condensing onto your onto your primary mirror. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you yeah. One of the big challenges of having a telescope on Earth is the need to protect it from the elements. And so if you open up your telescope when you shouldn't be, um, that's that's going to take quite some time and effort to fix, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, that's definitely, you don't want to be breaking these things that are expensive. <laughs> so um, you kind of get there, you set up, um, you don't actually open the dome uh, until about an hour before sunset, and that's when you want to kind of cool it down. But I'll get in and do the calibrations. I'll do the dark frames. I'll check the read noise. So these are all things that, um, like the dark frames and the flats, which which get done at the end of the night, are all calibrations which get um, kind of uh, added into the data to help create the best image quality that we we possibly can. Um, yeah, I I think one of the things that that always surprises people when they first learn about it is. Um, is the importance of calibrating your data, is the importance of having well calibrated data. Because a lot of times we are taking multiple different observations, often that were taken at different times, often from different instruments, always under different conditions, uh, about the same object or the same phenomenon. And we're trying to compare these. And if we don't understand how to responsibly compare one set of images versus another set of images, we're going to run the risk of drawing wildly inaccurate conclusions yeah. because because our data is miscalibrated. Also, uh, uh, you know, in the same image, like say you're measuring multiple things in the same image, but you haven't uh, flat fielded that image or you haven't reduced excess noise um, away from it. You know, you could get different measures for different areas of the same image. Wow. Um, so it's it's really important to get those calibrations right. Um, so you'll get in, you do your calibrations, uh, you open the dome and that's to cool it down. You want your telescope to be as close as possible to the temperature of the outside. And that's that's all to do again with seeing. And um, but you can definitely, you definitely notice a difference. So for instance, if I have, if I get in and I have uh, a lot of humidity at the beginning of the night and then it drops and I can open the dome, but I didn't have that time to open at the beginning of the night, my seeing measurements will come back higher than they would have originally. Than they would have if I had, had had the time to open. Um, so then uh, Yuka is, uh, essentially what's called a, a Q-based um, system. So we have a bunch of projects um, and we can talk about how those projects are allocated. That's a, I guess that's more political than <laughs> anything else. <laughs> uh, um, and they get, the projects get allocated to a Q and they have a priority. And then my job is to go, okay, what is the best thing to look at right now? You know, and like, is it is it high in the sky? Are we gonna? They, you know, they generally have different seeing parameters. Like some projects will take um, a higher seeing measurement than others. Some need a very precise seeing measurement. Um, so you kind of pick and choose that way, uh, and you stop occasionally to focus your telescope because obviously this is basically a camera, <laughs> like a giant camera. So right now we're using a uh, an instrument that. Actually, we've been using since I started. I've only played with this one as a, 
uh, with cam, which is a wide field camera. And uh, it can, it's really cool because it can get in like big star forming regions. uh, And that's, again, like you were saying, it's really important to have your mix of uh, kind of what wave band you're looking in, what instrument you want, like all those things should be lined up because um, it's really useful to look at star forming regions in the infrared. Um, because infrared can see through um, dust. Oh, that you can see through the dust. Yeah. Because so, you want to see what stars are in there, not just what stars happen to be in front of enough of the dust that you can see them. Exactly, right. And there's a bunch of cool images that demonstrate this online I, I often use in schools. So things like the Horsehead Nebula. Like if you Google Horsehead Nebula Invisible, you'll get a huge pile of dust. It's still very beautiful. Um, but if you Google it in the infrared, suddenly all the stars pop out. And yeah, the outline of the dust is still there, but you can see the stars being born inside the cloud. Um, yeah, my favorite examples of that are, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to Mauna Kea and all the ground-based telescopes, but I think my favorite examples come from Hubble and are the uh, the Pillars of Creation and the Carina Nebula both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hubble was, yeah, in- insanely awesome for things like that. Um but yeah, so having a wide field camera on Yuka is really important because it can do those kinds of things. It's also become very good as a, um, we do a lot of survey work. Uh, so there's the UKID survey, um, which is, is publicly accessible. It's all the areas of the sky we can get essentially in various infrared wave bands. Um, and uh, that's also possible, you know, because you have a wide field camera, it's a lot quicker to uh, go around and take big snapshots of the of the sky that you wouldn't necessarily be able to get as quickly if you had a really small um, field of view. So Yeah, and that's that's to contrast with a telescope also on Mauna Kea like Keck, right? Yeah, like exactly. Keck Keck is great for going deep and narrow and gathering huge amounts of light over a very small region of the sky. Keck can see things that are far fainter and farther away than you, Kurt, could ever see. But if yeah. you say, okay, I want to use Keck to go um, to go image the entire sky, um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I hope you have a long life ahead of you because... Um, like you're going to, your time allocation committee is going to be like, no, what? <laughs> I mean, you're going to be talking in like the hundreds of millennia sort of time scale yeah, to do it. There's no way. So yeah, that's, and I think that really speaks to the the amazing kind of a, I really want to find a good word for this, like not like cohabitation, but like a, a coexistence of those different telescopes. Um, there's obviously a lot of uh, pain and issues with um, Mauna Kea and in terms of the native Hawaiian community and in terms of the telescopes being built there. Um, and I think it's, for me anyway, it's important to remind myself that like these telescopes often work in harmony. Harmony, there we go. No, I wanted to say that's that's an issue I know I know you've been passionate about, and I know that I, I have some strong feelings on that as well, is sort of this interface of, um, you know, what the scientific community is sort of looking for as far as like, hey, you know, all of these telescopes at the Mauna Kea Observatories, they are complementary, they work really well, 
both independently and with each other, and the amount of science and the quality of science we get from them um, is is interdependent. Um, we can learn more from this suite of telescopes that specialize in different things, that probe different wavelengths. Um, I think. I think the Mauna Kea observatories are the most productive astronomical set of observatories of any observatories in the history of astronomy on Earth. Definitely. And then that, you know, it's easy to have very conflicted feelings when that runs up against a an entire native people's right to their own self-determination. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly difficult, I think, for... Um, for a lot of people. And I think there's, it's tough because it's, um, I mean, it's a very controversial topic and there was obviously, it's, it kind of came to a head or, I mean, it's been an issue for a very long time, like far longer than I've lived here. Um, and maybe that, you know, makes me not, you know, the best option to speak to it, but I do have, um, kind of, it's, it's a very emotive topic for me and a lot of other, um, astronomers, especially, um, who, work at the telescopes i think is that it kind of came to a head with the the construction or the the uh, potential beginning of the construction of the 30 meter telescope which is uh one of the kind of next generation um telescopes like the eelt yeah it was meant to be or it is meant to be um uh contracted to be built on mount Kea. Um, right and there are there are only three right there are only three proposed next generation yeah, 30 yeah. meter class telescopes there's the giant magellan telescope which is which mm -hmm. is in that is in that number two site i talked to you about the chilean andes and there's the eelt that you mentioned the european extremely large telescope which is also in the chilean andes in the southern hemisphere um and the tmt was slated and is still slated but was slated uh years ago to begin construction uh, on Mauna Kea about I think 300 meters from the summit uh, at the uh, on a uh, on a naturally occurring shelf on the north summit of the mountain uh, and it was going to be the only 30 meter class telescope right the current biggest telescopes are 10 11 12 meters across uh, and these are GMT is 25 meters EELT is 39 meters and TMT just like it's very boring acronym suggests is 30 meters yeah, um, not great at naming stuff huh well, you know, we try to be creative, right? Um, but they never are. Astronomers have a bad, bad case of acronym fever. So, um, yeah, you know, if you don't have a good acronym, you're dead in the water. My favorite was the uh, the Okra Prototype Telescope, which was oh crap. Um, uh, I hadn't heard that one. That's a good one. Yeah, that was that was older, but uh, but yeah, I mean, come on, they tried to make the overwhelmingly large telescope or the Owl telescope, and uh, that one got scrapped because that one was going to be even bigger than the EELT. That was going to be the first 100 meter class telescope, and as ambitious as it was, it just didn't pan out. Um, but with TMT, um, the Northern Hemisphere, like astronomers definitely want a Northern Hemisphere 30 meter class telescope. Um, but, you know, also, you know, I think when people have been marginalized for a very long time and they finally, you know, get to the point, it was described to me by, uh, by a member of the indigenous community as a sort of like Horton hears a who moment where, yeah. you know, all of 
all of us that she said to me have been together for a very long time on this speck of dust, like shouting at the top of our lungs. And finally, like an elephant heard us, a big eared elephant, like just at the limit of his hearing, like heard us and started to pay attention. And that was sort of like the the awakening moment that happened maybe five, five or six years ago or so, where where the rest of the world started looking at this and didn't just think like, oh, like there are some, you know, and and pardon my my insensitivity here, but but the rest of the world didn't say like, oh, like here are some primitive savages, let's just steamroll them and do what we want anyway. And and finally, uh, I think the rest of the world woke up to like, oh, well, maybe uh, maybe like over a century of injustice and marginalization and uh, steamrolling of native political rights, um, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. And maybe we we should seek the consent of the native people in in doing this and you know and the native community understandably just like the the majority of the community in in hawaii is is split on this issue of what do we do about autonomy self-government um the historical wrongs that have been done to us both by and well outside of the astronomy community and also um how do we move forward in a productive and successful way as a part of the modern society that we live in because we don't want to go back to isolationism absolutely and we shouldn't allow that either you know we should all be standing up for um everyone's rights you know it's it's not about it's and it's 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 a really hard as a scientist as someone who you know we spoke we already spoke about this how amazing Mauna Kea is as an observational site um and how it's so it's it's hard to come down on where you kind of what where you stand right like i've definitely um i can absolutely be faulted for not thinking about native rights for most of my life right like i grew up in england um i didn't move to america until five years ago um i knew very little about hawaii um because it's quite literally the furthest point you can get from england um <laughs> in terms of you know going uh longitudinally non uh around the earth <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so it was you know to me i you know i can i i absolutely have um no shame in saying you know i was i was wrong my first opinion of this was of course we should build a telescope of course it's going to bring jobs it's going to bring money it's god i sound like trump when i say that don't i uh i like this self-awareness it's tough isn't yeah, it it's, it's really important to to be like that i think i think it's there's a huge reckoning right now for you know within a lot of minorities within a lot of not white guys and it's important for all of us to understand our own biases and our own kind of not necessarily you know it's not you know it's not like it's not that i was ever like oh you know hawaiian native savages or anything like i was never anti that but it's important to know where you weren't just paying you weren't paying attention you know like it never affected me i never thought about it so when someone first said to me oh we're having issues with this telescope i was like oh why build the telescope you know yeah i i like that that notion of things i've, I've thought about that a lot recently that you know uh, 
a lot of what we sort of consider for ourselves as like, oh, like this is this is much more interesting and this is much more intricate and this is a much more like complex issue than I was aware of. Like almost all of that I find comes from the fact that we just are paying more attention to it. These issues have always been there. These issues have always been important. These issues have always been um, at the core, at the heart of whatever conflict is going on. Um, right. And and it's just sort of like, oh, as I, as I personally pay more attention to it, learn more about it, involve myself in it, et cetera, um, I start hearing different parts of the story that I didn't know before, um, you know, and that that's true. That's as true for uh, the Black Lives Matter movement as it is for uh, taking a knee during the national anthem and what that means. You know, I know a, a lot of people that I spoke to uh who were against kneeling during the national anthem and think that everyone should stand and everyone should sing and that's what brings all Americans together. Um, I asked them if they knew about the third verse of the American national anthem and what someone like Jackie Robinson, the first African-American Major League Baseball player, thought about the national anthem, which he refused to stand for and refused to sing because of what the history of the national anthem was you know i think i think there's this you know we all we all know what we know right um, but but do we have enough compassion to care about the perspectives of other people who have a different and sometimes non-overlapping set of knowledge to our own right and i think i mean because it's i i tried to look at it when i when I kind of tried to educate myself more in it, I started talking to people who were of the native Hawaiian community, some people I know who fall into both the categories of the Venn diagram. They are also astronomers and, and native Hawaiian. And obviously that's incredibly difficult for them um, in terms of this particular scenario. Um, but the way I kind of framed it in my head was what things, you know, kind of am I really aware of and knowledgeable about um, due to kind of where I, my kind of, uh, circle where I, who I am, where I live in time and space. And, you know, one of those things is I'm a woman, right? So there's, there's issues around that. Um, and I'm an immigrant. So there's, you know, I have feelings about that and the plight of immigrants generally. And, you know, so it's kind of like, okay, now imagine that, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the shoes of a native Hawaiian who, um, you know, I, I have no, I, I have no, and I never will have a real understanding of what it is to be Native Hawaiian, the same as I won't have ever have an understanding of what it is to be African-American. But that doesn't mean that I don't uh, kind of, I can't, you know, that doesn't mean that I shouldn't acknowledge that pain. It doesn't mean that I can't stand up and fight for what is just, what is just right, you know? Um, I think a yeah. lot of people struggle with that is when, when I don't have experience right. as um, as a member of a community, uh, how do I how do I have empathy? How do I show sensitivity, allyship? How do I how do I advocate for someone else's rights uh, in a way that's both effective and also that doesn't um, that doesn't um, sort of wash over all the other issues that also are very real issues that need to be addressed. Yeah. I mean, so there's, yeah, that's, and that's often, 
that's that's often one of the things that you kind of come up against, isn't it? When you have, um, but I, I feel like you can, you know, that can go too far the other way. Like you get the people who say things like, oh, women's rights, what about men's rights? Or black lives matter, but don't all lives matter? And that's, you know, that's just such an exhausting rhetoric. Like. Yeah, I mean, certainly, certainly when there are issues that come up, you have to you have to be aware that like, okay, like the person that I'm engaging with, are they engaging genuinely? Are they really attempting to solve a problem or are they attempting to delay, deflect, derail? Are they trying to change the subject? Are they trying to do anything other than address the issue at hand? Um, I'm sort of thinking about, um, okay, one of the things this is. This is not related to astronomy, but it is related to science and Hawaii um, and public safety. Uh, Two years ago, two and a half years ago now, um, there was a now famous uh, volcanic eruption uh, in on the Big Island in uh, in Leilani Estates. Um, You know, people know about this. Um, The Hawaii Volcano Observatory did an exquisite job of managing this, of posting reports about air quality, lava flows, uh, keeping people safe, evacuating people. Um, you know, they they did a remarkable job. They had a whole set of infrastructure installed to monitor this. They had seismometers that were on site. They had a large building that was at the crater rim. They had like they got to monitor all of these changes on site in real time. A lot of the equipment was destroyed by the quakes. Yeah. A lot of the, uh, the the building where people were housed is is rendered uninhabitable and they're going to demolish it. Um, but in the aftermath of that, um, I would say a lot of very controversial things happened. The The native community asked the geophysicists and the geologists and the people who worked at HVO to not rebuild any of those buildings. They asked them to abandon the on-site monitoring. They asked them to use drones instead. They asked them to not install new sets of seismometers where they would want to install them. And they asked them to move their headquarters out of Volcano National Park. And they moved them to uh, the city of Hilo, which is, I think, 37 miles away. Um, And you know the the scientists uh they they did what was asked of them they they wanted to respect the wishes of the indigenous people um and i talked to some of the geophysicists and the usgs members who worked at hbo and they told me that first off they wanted me to understand that the data they were able to collect from having those instruments there during the eruption um they learned a whole slew of new things that they had never seen before and that they would never learn those things again. Without that equipment there, uh, this knowledge is not being gained. The uh, They are not using the best scientific tools or techniques to gather this data. And in many ways, although they, they hate to say it, um, 
the people who live on the big island of Hawaii are less safe and less resilient against volcanic eruptions now than they were before the eruption that took place in January of 2018. And moreover, a number of the scientists who were working there 2017-2018 have chosen not to continue working there as of 2020, that there has been a large brain drain because it's a it's a less it's not as good of a work environment that's just it is they they don't have the best resources that they would have had anymore they don't have the support of the community they don't have the infrastructure um and i feel like um this is you know this is both bad for everyone it's bad for the scientific community and it's bad for the, you know, the community of all people who live on Hawaii. I feel like it's a symbolic but pyrrhic victory for the native community. I feel like everyone is worse off because of this. And I worry, like, you know, to to do exactly the sort of devil's advocate thing you warned against, I was like, is is astronomy on Hawaii going to go down the same route? Yeah, so it's actually thank you for that because I hadn't really thought. I actually just moved to Volcano Village. I'm about a mile from the national park. No, I wonder um, if you bought one of my friend's old houses who moved out. No, I, I actually bought. Oh, I'm, I'm actually. I, I would happily talk about my new house. It's uh, it was actually owned by uh, etymologists. So uh, mm. something I learned very recently about the area of the village I live in is that back in the 40s, um, UH Hilo and UH Manoa would attract uh, professors and scientists to come and work at the universities by providing land. And in um, for the Big Island, it was in Volcano Village. And that is the house I've just bought was um, owned by some, uh, I think one was an etymologist, one was a botanist. Um, so it's, yeah, it's really beautiful. It has a lot of like native fauna. They haven't really cleared much of the lot, which is nice. Um, but yeah, so it's, I hadn't actually done much kind of looking into the, to the post-eruption uh, politics. I knew that they had moved the um, facilities, uh, and it's yeah, it's it's scary because it's you know we do need to be able to monitor the the activity from uh, Kilauea, and it's yeah, it's it's such a because I can definitely empathise with wanting to have these very sacred places be um, kept. Uh, sacred right to not be and I think you know there's a lot of um, but there is a lot of misinformation especially about what happens on Mauna Kea in terms of how uh, the telescopes are constructed and things like that so there is a lot of uh, yeah there's a lot of misinformation basically but actually you know they do do very thorough environmental studies and you know there is the the office of Mauna Kea management which um, do a lot of the kind of studies about the again like the etymology like the animals the the um, the native fauna that live on the mountain, which is, you know, very specific to the mountain. Um, and I know that most of the observatories do have a, a you know, a, a really great approach to, to not damaging the ecosystem. Um, and I think a lot of it comes back to quite sadly, a lot of it comes back to the kind of bureaucracy that started the whole thing, like the, to do with the lease and to do with um, kind of how the initial telescopes were constructed and how, you know, maybe they didn't go through the 
the procedures as they would have these days or I, you know and I, I don't know I, don't, I haven't lived here for long enough to really speak to you know the original telescopes or anything like that but no uh, and I, I think one of the uh, problems that I think uh, that exists that that do have a large historical legacy is this use of I don't know what you'd call it but I sort of call it legal violence where you basically use the law that you know that the native community didn't get any input into uh to say well i have the legal authority to do this and then you go ahead and do this and um and then it's done and then you come back and you say oh well we did that and we're going to just do that same thing because it's legal to do this and before you know it um you know now you've got this generations long legacy of doing things that you basically haven't had consent of the people who live there to do except that you came in and you imposed your own rules and you said these are the rules and then you've been doing it yeah exactly like we you know that's i mean that's the history of colonization really isn't it like yeah i mean what what do we call you like that thanks england mom like thanks for yeah. giving birth to us and that <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's dreadful like it's um it's just yeah you're right it's just the history of how things were laid out and i think that's i think that's something that people you know when when i was kind of saying earlier about the people who say you know all lives matter i think that's an issue that people do i heard a, i heard a quote the other day that i kind of um rang true and i kind of thought about it was it was not all white people are um, white supremacists, but all white people benefit from white supremacy. And uh, that made me think a lot, you know, because yeah, there's the privilege that um, you and I have from being white that, um, or I have, I'm sorry, I don't know how, I don't know how white you are, Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you that, uh, so I am white enough that, uh, that one of the benefits I see from white supremacy, and for those of you who are non-white or non-white passing out there, I will let you know that um, when racist or white supremacist white people are in private with other people that they believe are also white, they will share their white supremacist views with you and expect you to agree with them. Um, and this is this is something that um, you know, as someone who is, um, well, I'm 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 white until someone is anti-Semitic and then they decide that I'm Jewish instead of white. Right. Um, and so that is that is sort of interesting that I I do get uh, I do get treated as though I'm white. And then I will also get treated as though I am, you know, a member of the secret cabal that controls the world and needs to be stopped at all costs and as the most evil uh, race of people who's ever lived. <laughs> Man, I yeah. That's another thing I'd never really thought about at length until I moved to the States was the kind of global Jewish conspiracy or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, it's the sort of thing where, you know, I think I, I grew up in New York, right. And I lived in, I lived in, uh, I lived outside of Chicago, I lived in Houston, I lived in Los Angeles, and this was all before I went to graduate school in Gainesville, Florida. And going there was eye-opening because I started encountering 
real anti-Semitism for the first time in my life uh, while I was there, where where it was like it was the first time where I was like, oh, like, yeah, totally. If these people who believe these things get me alone with them, like my body will show up in the inside of an alligator in five years. Like that's that's what's going to happen to me. And I it was uh, it was. I would say it was disconcerting to realize sort of the level of violence and animosity that existed towards me because of a characteristic I didn't have. But I think that's another manifestation of privilege that as a uh, as a as a straight white cis male, um, I haven't had to deal with that. You know, when I was uh, I'll share a little story with you when I was. Uh, 13 years old uh, in New York. This was right when the Rodney King verdict came in. And the, um, you know, we had this thing happen where, uh, you know, these cops that just brutalized this man on TV just beat him uh, to within an inch of his life uh, with their batons while he lay uh, on the floor just, you know, getting beaten. Um, they were all acquitted. And when that happened, um, you know, there were riots, there were protests, even though that happened in Los Angeles and I was in New York, our junior high school, uh, a bunch of us got together and we walked out and we protest and we carried signs and we chanted no justice, no peace. And as part of this, somehow I wound up on the front page of my local newspaper doing this. Um, which, you know, is fine, whatever. I'm, you know, you, you support the things you believe in and you stand up for other people when other people need standing up for. Um, when I got home from school that day, I had to have an uncomfortable conversation with my parents where, you know, they, they were challenging me about why would I do this? Don't I know about Al Sharpton and how bad he is? And why would I stand up for black people when there's all this violence against Jews in Crown Heights perpetrated by black people? And I had to explain to them, like, what my feelings on it were and what my thoughts on it were and what no justice, no peace actually meant and the importance of standing up for each other. And did they go to the March on Washington when they were kids? And, you know, and and they, you know, I did. I had to have that uncomfortable conversation. And then when I got back to school the next day and I was talking to the black kids at school, I discovered that a bunch of them had conversations with their parents. But it wasn't a conversation where, oh, I might be in trouble because I did something my parents don't approve of. They had the talk. And if you don't know what the talk is as a black person, it is where your parents tell you how to act, how to have your friends act when you have an encounter with the police so that they don't kill you. Yeah, it's it's just like so amazingly, it's, it's so eye-opening when you, yeah, I remember the first time I read about the talk, right? And I was like, yeah, wow, you know, because like, you know, I've been pulled over. Like, I, you know, I've spoken to policemen. Like, it's not, you know, and I just, I realized the other day that since I lived in uh, Hawaii, I've actually been pulled over three times. And I never got pulled over in England, but um, I'm not a terrible driver, I promise. Um, you know, and- we drive on the right here, Jess. I, no, we- no, no, do you know what, Ethan, I'm not going <laughs> to you. I'll tell you this is actually a really good privilege story, right? Like where I was like, wow, I, I have way too much privilege. Um, I was driving on the wrong side of the road. So how this happened, <laughs> a professor from my English alma mater was visiting and he's English 
And I drove him back to his hotel and I was just, I'd only been in Hawaii about three, four months and I was just in English mode. And I pulled out of the hotel onto the wrong side of the road and I immediately realized but it was divided, like there was a divided highway. And luckily it was late at night and there was no one coming. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna, there was a right coming up in my 20 yards. I was like, right, I'm gonna take that right and turn my car around. And just before I could do that, a police car came the other way. And we like almost had a head on collision. I was like, shit, I'm gonna get, sorry for cussing. I was like, I'm gonna get arrested, right? Like, this is really bad. Like I was driving on the wrong side of the road. Are you kidding me? Like, and I, you know, I don't drink and drive or anything. So I wasn't inebriated, but I pulled over and the policeman got out and he came up and he kind of looked very angry, like in my rear view, I was like, oh God. And he got up to the car and I rolled on my window and he shone his light in and I saw his gun and I was like, oh God, American police are truly terrifying. And um, he was like, oh, what's going on? And I started telling him, I was like, I'm so sorry, officer. I had a bit of nostalgia for home or something. I don't know what happened. And he was like, okay. Uh, I, you know, are you all right? Do you want me to help you get home? Like all this. And I was like, what? Like, are you not going to book me? You know, he didn't, didn't even breathalyze me. And <laughs> I was like, are you kidding? You know, I, what? <laughs> and I didn't think about that incident again until recently. Where yeah. I mean, it's the sort of thing where if you take a look at what happened to you versus what happened to someone like Sandra Bland, yeah. um, and to those of you who don't know who Sandra Bland is, uh, feel free to go look that one up because it's it, it's a tragedy that that yeah. I've not been able to forget since I first heard her story. Um, it's uh, you know it, it is like on the one hand, I think like why why would that why would you get that kind of treatment and someone like her would get the kind of treatment she got. But now I, I think about it more of why, as a civil society, should we tolerate anyone getting treatment worse than the treatment you got? Like the treatment you got where, oh, well, someone is there to serve and protect. You were doing something stupid and illegal, but nobody got hurt. And uh, like it was just a... It's sort of like, you know, a friend of mine when I was in college got pulled over at night for driving with his lights off. And why was he driving with his lights off? Because there was no one on the road and it was well lit and he forgot to turn his lights on. Right. And that was it. The cops stopped him. He turned his lights on. Everything was fine. I feel like those are the types of encounters that if people had those encounters was the normal encounter they had with police. And that was the encounter that everyone across the board had. Um, you know, we would say, Oh, that is what it looks like for people to do their job uh, sufficiently. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, and that's not, you know, I know that that even amongst, you know, white people or women or whatever, that's, that's, I probably had like a weirdly good experience with that particular police person. Um, but it's, it's, and I think, you know, that's a, that's a problem I see a lot when I talk to people who, who don't necessarily feel like they're aligned with the Black Lives Movement. It's, they say, oh, but you know, I get pulled over. And I'm like, yeah, but do you think you're gonna die? You know? And it's like, when that guy pulled me over, I did notice his gun, but it was only because I come from a country where our police aren't armed. Um, but I wasn't scared. Like I was scared I was gonna get booked. I was scared I was gonna get a ticket. Um, 
or breathalyzed, which is embarrassing. But, you know, I wasn't scared for my life at all. I knew I was going to go home that night. And it just makes all the difference. You know, we have strayed from astronomy, but. (laughs) You know, I, but I know this is something that's important to you, right? I know, I know you're passionate about this and I know that a lot of people are in, in my, in my own ways, I'm very passionate about this too. I know we started talking about instrumentation and telescopes and UKIRT and Mauna Kea and the difference between infrared and binary stars and blah, blah, blah. And now here we are talking about indigenous rights and the Black Lives Matter movement. But I think it's also important to recognize, you know, when you talk about indigenous issues or you talk about black issues or you talk about, you know, feminist issues or or bigotry issues or LGBTQ issues, um, you are also talking about astronomy issues and physics yep. issues and science issues because these sciences, these fields, they are for everyone. They are for everyone. It is not some special thing that white people or male people or straight people or that. No, this is for everyone. The The wonders of the universe, our knowledge of the universe, the process of exploring the universe. This is for everyone. This is a human endeavor. And if you are part of the human race, this is your endeavor too. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's not reflected. <laughs> in a lot of uh, departments um and no it- and we we know this right in yeah. in astronomy we've sort of witnessed uh, over the last uh, 50 years or so we've sort of witnessed a gender balance uh sort of begin to arise from what was an entirely male dominated field we are now pretty close to gender parity, uh, especially uh, amongst younger people than we've ever been before. But that change has not come to physics departments as quickly. Um, We have seen a large influx of uh, Hispanic physics majors and astronomy majors and young scientists, but we have not seen that increase in black people. Black people traditionally have always been 12 to 15 percent of the American population. And over the past 20 years, they have remained just two to three percent of astronomy and physics majors. Yeah. And Um, I think it's important to remember that, like, in this specific instance, we're talking about undergrad, right? Like there's there is such a um, uh, uh, what's it called? A, um, Are you a, referring to the leaky pipeline yeah, problem? The leaky pipeline, uh, and obviously how you know you end up losing a lot of um, kind of non. I'll say minority students because what I'm really trying to say is non-white men. Yeah, you're trying to say anyone who's been underrepresented, which is everyone other than white men, and occasionally, you know, depending on where you are, that might include uh, Asian men or Indian men as well. Right. And it's, it, you know, we have the leaky pipeline is definitely a problem. And also the, you know, the undergrad representation you were saying, like, it's, it's truly appalling numbers when it comes to African American students. Um, and we need to do and, you know, it's, retention and retainment of of students in in underrepresented groups is it's tricky because you have a lot of a lot of people fighting for this a lot of people fighting for this um but you also have people who live in in that old men's club right like who don't either see the necessity for change or at the extreme they see it as being unfair so i remember in my undergrad about uh i was i was saying oh, I, I got this internship in hawaii that's how i got out here and um 
one of the guys in my class who I like barely knew um, was just like, oh, that's not fair. Like, why didn't I get that internship? And I was like, well, you didn't go for it. Like I created this internship. It wasn't like, um, it wasn't something you applied for. I, I asked around, you know, and did my, did my work to get there. And uh, he was like, well, why didn't I get an internship in Hawaii? I was like, well, A, you didn't work for it. Like, you didn't want to go to Hawaii. Like, why, why are you jealous now, you know? And then he was like, oh, you know, it's just because you're a woman. Like, they need more women. And I'm like, like, that's unfair on me, you know? And I was like, dude. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and looking back on that, like, with, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm 42 years old now. When I hear something like that, you know, I think like, oh, I've known a bunch of, you know, male undergrads who have exactly that mentality that, oh, if someone else achieved something that in some way is more than what I achieved, then I have to find some way or some reason to diminish their accomplishments so that I can feel like I am still the superior one, right. as though as though that that's what life is about. Right. But then it's also it, it also is made harder by the fact that, like, you know, there's there's many studies that have been done on how uh, women and, and underrepresented groups have to produce more types of work or more, you know, or just more work generally to be considered as good as their male colleagues, right? Yeah, I mean, certainly, um, certainly the bar is set higher uh, as far as our expectations go, right? In in general, um, if you see three names on a paper and you recognize one of them as a senior astronomer, um, you're going to assume that the senior astronomer. Uh, is the driving force behind that work, even though that's normally not even the case. Uh, you're going to assume that that senior astronomer is, you know, that, oh, well, because of legacy issues of racism and sexism and, you know, how that's been institutionalized, um, that person is more likely to be white and male. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's sort of a way that, that these old prejudices and the old well this is how we've always done things uh sort of continue where you know vanessa williams talked about this in the 1980s i don't know why it's stuck with me but she was the first black miss america and when she interviewed about it um she said something that was very controversial but that i've always remembered and she said that a black woman has to give 110 percent to be considered equal with a white woman who's giving 90 percent. right yeah and and that's you know that kind of dichotomy can be seen across you know all, all kinds of underrepresentation right like it's yeah it's ah oh god so well, look, we're not we're not going to solve racism, misogyny, bigotry on a uh, podcast between the two of us here. But I do think these are important issues for people to think about, be aware of, because when you're advocating for equality, when you're advocating for something like even if you're advocating for something like all lives matter, you have to recognize that all lives don't face equal challenges. Yeah. And um, and if you want to make it true that all lives matter, that everyone deserves a seat at the table, that everyone deserves a shot, um, 
you know, it's really not fair to say, okay, I'm going to draw a line in the sand right here. Um, and no matter what advantage or disadvantage you have, I'm going to hold everyone to this same standard that that inherently is going to amplify any pre-existing inequalities. And yeah. so if you want a society where people actually do get equal opportunities, you have to recognize the systemic ways in which opportunities do not come about equally for people who have different superficial characteristics. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We should have a separate podcast where we just talk about this. Yeah. Do you do you run a podcast? You I can... I've only recently I was actually really stoked when you invited me because I've only recently got into podcasts and now I'm like obsessed, you know, and it's actually oh. one of the things I do when I observe, like I listen to a bunch of podcasts and some of them are along the train of what we're talking about right now. Um, well, I mean, look, if you wanted to have a Jess's Justice Junkies podcast, I would I would I would I would happily be a guest on that and we could talk about we could talk about lots of different things, whatever you wanted. That's a really good name for a podcast. Um, you know, astronomers, right? We come up with acronyms, right? Yeah. Triple J. Yeah. Hey, um I this would be a really good segue to talk about a nonprofit that I work for in astronomy. Yes, please do. I I'm sorry for not bringing this up. You, for, to to just to let everyone know, she she did let me know about this before the podcast, and I told her we would talk about it. And now here we are, over an hour into the podcast, and I haven't brought it up at all. So uh, my, my my bad. Uh, Jess, would you like to tell us about the nonprofit you're involved in? I would love to. So I am the a mentor and also the web designer. <laughs> for um, a nonprofit called Mauna Kea Scholars. So this was uh, kind of initiated through uh, CFHT, the Canada France Hawaii Telescope, um, several years ago, and has now grown to include um, essentially all the telescopes on Mauna Kea, although it is um, run through uh, the CFHT by an absolute, like one of the most badass women I know, uh, Mary Beth Lejack. And, um, Essentially, what we do is we send graduate students and astronomers into public schools in, in the Hawaii school system. Uh, and that's we actually have every island now. So we even go to schools on like Lanai and Molokai and um, the islands which kind of get less representation in these in usually in these kind of educational uh, places. Yeah. Um, and that have way less population. Like you're talking oh, about yeah. the non-major islands that have fewer than 10,000 people yeah. on any of them. We go to like the one school on Lanai, you know. <laughs> So yeah. um, essentially what we do is uh, it's usually dictated by the school uh, that will have like a, it'll either be an astronomy class or an astronomy club or a science class or whatever. And um, they will write, we'll go in and talk to them and they'll basically write telescope proposals. So this is what, the same thing that any scientist would do. You know, you want to go and look at, oh, excuse me, you want to go and look at uh, Andromeda, you know, you'd write a proposal. And you'd send it to a time allocation committee and they would say, okay, we'll give you this time or no, go away. This is terrible or whatever, except that we're not that harsh. Um, so right. kids, uh, the students write these proposals um, after we've kind of trained them and schooled them a bit in like, you know, what instruments are good for what and things like that. And uh, they submit these proposals to kind of an internal TAC, uh, time allocation committee at CFHT and we don't so we each school has each school will get telescope time but the students within that school are kind of like competing for it um and then the students that are allocated actually get their data 
like they get to observe with the Mauna Kea telescopes, um, which is obviously something that some scientists dream about, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, this is, you're talking about a world-class set of observatories and you're talking about how basically uh, students, like students in, in high school, at the high school level, maybe even younger, uh, can gain access to these world-class facilities. Yeah, it's, it's high school students, uh, usually seniors, but also juniors. And I think the really awesome thing about Mauna Kea Scholars, like something that I've always I thought was really vital is that we we hit different types of uh students we hit different um kind of abilities and things like that so like said so, which is why we don't pit the schools against each other it's why we pit each each school has its own kind of group so for instance there's some schools which have uh will go to their astronomy club so these kids already know a bunch about astronomy they're already super invested in astronomy and they really want a science fair project and where better to get the data than mauna kea right so these students will have these amazing proposals and like we've you know we've had students um who now go to you know mainland colleges and like all those kinds of things um and then we have students who so i actually work with a school um in hilo town uh, where I actually see almost 80 students a year, uh, <laughs> which I don't know how that got so big. Um, and it, I, I work with their credit recovery students. So these are the students who are seniors or juniors and they need their science credits to graduate. Um, and for whatever reason, science hasn't spoken to them. Um, and I go in and I say, right, we're going to get our, we're going to get our credits. And their teacher will, their teacher is it's up to them how they kind of like, you know, do the schoolwork because we're not the school. Um, so usually the teacher will say, okay, you need to produce a proposal. So, um, and then, you know, you'll get your science credit. So I'll go in maybe once a month as often as I can and I'll work with the students on these proposals. And like, the reason I really like working with these particular students is they're often from underrepresented backgrounds. They often haven't engaged in science. And I believe a lot of this is that they don't see themselves in science, you know, and Although I'm not, you know, native Hawaiian or anything, I am a fairly youngish woman, um, which is, you know, more unusual in science. Got the pink hair going on, you know, and like, um, I occasionally. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, you don't look like most people's traditional view of what a scientist looks right. like. Right. So that I think helps. Um, and what I really love is like even the kids that come out of this, not, you know, not still not really liking science tend to have this increase in confidence that they've had from a scientist, a real, or what they perceive as a real scientist. I'm pretty sure they think I'm more sciencey than I am. <laughs> um, they- I think you're more sciencey than you think you are. <laughs> talk about imposter syndrome and mental health later, if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I see this increase in confidence that comes from having someone that they consider to be smart, they consider to be an authority figure, have trust in them you know we say hey here's a telescope that cost a billion dollars to build go play with it you know because we do take we aim to i mean this year has been terrible because of covid but we aim to take every single student that we mentor to the mountain so they get to see the telescopes they get to go inside the telescopes and this is super vital for you know the kids some of these kids have never even been to the big island you know and we fly them over and then some of them have never been up mauna kea ever you know and they've lived here their whole lives and you know, they get to, so not only do they get to connect with the telescopes and the astronomy community, they get to connect with 
Mauna Kea. Um, and I think that's, I think it's a really great way to try and bring some harmony to what is right now a really chaotic scenario, right? Like there's a, it's, you know, I mean, COVID obviously adds to the, to the chaos and we do have plans for this year, which will hopefully um, help us to continue our program. Cause obviously a lot of it is in school uh, based stuff. Um, right. But it's, you know, I think it's just, I've worked with a lot of different charities and nonprofits and education things over the years. I do a lot of community outreach and I, I really enjoy it. Um, but Manicare Scholars is something that like really took my heart. You know, it really, really makes a difference. Like it's, it's not just, you know, it's not, and it's not, we don't go into the private schools, you know, we go to the public schools, we go to the underrepresented communities, you know, we have, oh man, we have hella awesome girls who like get super into astronomy. Um, yeah. And that, that has to be gratifying. You know, I think I, I think I had the chance actually to talk with Mary Beth, who you mentioned at Monarchy Observatories. To you, she said, oh yeah, Ethan, yeah, I know him. Yeah, yeah, that that sounds right. That's probably that's probably what I was worth as a comment. But um, but I believe she mentioned to me that uh, outreach every year that they do through the Monarchy Observatories impacts a total of somewhere around twenty thousand uh, students. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. So that would be Monarchy as a as a total. I think Monarchy Scholars is. I mean, it's probably a large proportion of that. You know, we do. There's a but there's a lot of different. I think one of the really important things about kind of moving away from the nonprofit a bit, one of the really important things about astronomy outreach in general is hitting the different um, kind of levels of education. So you've got, you know, it's important to educate students uh, individually. So like I take science fair students every year that I'll give them a project and I'll mentor them through it. That's like your individual based, you know, specialist learning for students who want to go and do astronomy at college. But then you've got your things like Mount Care Scholars, which go into high schools and teach real science to students and help them graduate. But then you also want to be um, educating the general public, right? So um, the Institute for Astronomy runs a, a biannual, it is now, um, event called Astro Day, where the, the Hilo version of this, they basically rent out the entire mall um, and all the telescopes go down and like have tables like all throughout the mall and do like games and you all get thousands of people. Right. So it's like there's, uh, you know, and it'll have little games and activities and you'll learn a little bit about astronomy and like we engage with the community. And that's also super vital, you know, because it's it's it, I think it helps to bridge that gap because a lot of, you know, a lot of the issues around the TMT and around Mauna Kea in general, I think is without, you know, I, I think people will be mad at me for saying this, but I think a lot of it is our fault, honestly, you know, like we don't engage enough. You know, and not like nowadays, like we do do a lot of good work nowadays, but I think in the past, perhaps people see scientists as, you know, looking down their nose and thinking they know best. And that's not the case. No, and I, I'm sure you still know and could name, but won't, uh, many scientists who do exactly fit that profile even today. And I think that's to the detriment of us all. I mean, I, I said it before and I'll say it again to you. Um science is for all of us the benefits of it the lessons from it are for all of us it is not just the few thousand people who've gotten their phd in that specific subfield who who qualify as being worthy of that knowledge like this is this is something that we have done collectively as humanity no no one of us has done it all not even the most brilliant scientist you could envision um and and 
and the benefits of that, the the knowledge of that, um, this is something that that everyone on this planet deserves to share in. Absolutely. Like, why else are we doing it? Right? Like, yeah, I, it's... <laughs> Uh. Well, listen, don't don't get too frustrated. You do have to remember that um, that we're all only individuals and we can only do as much as one individual can. The things you are doing with your time and effort are valuable and making a difference. And I hope the things I am are, are exactly the same. Oh, absolutely. I think they are. And like I, it's um, I think working, especially with Manicare scholars, like it is just such it is just so rewarding. You know, and I remember when I was in grad school, I would always, you know, there would occasionally someone would say to me, be it a professor or whatever, like, oh, you do so much outreach. Like, you know, what if this is a, you know, that's not how you graduate, basically. And I'd be like, well, if it takes me longer or if something else happens, like, that's fine. You know, like, this is part of who I am. And doing outreach would also be really good for me because I would find that if I was having a hard time, obviously graduate school is tough, right? A lot of people find it really hard like if I was having a hard time and I went and did some outreach like I went and taught at a school or I went and hung out with some kids that I work with or whatever it would completely re-energize me it would be exhausting because those outreach days are exhausting but I would wake up the next day being like right this is why I do what I do I don't do do, science doesn't happen in a vacuum (laughs) although I guess astronomy does but. You you know, <laughs> it is true. Astronomy yeah. does happen in a vacuum, the the greatest vacuum of all, arguably, in in intergalactic space, right? Most um, intense vacuum of them all. But that doesn't that, mean that we create a vacuum, right? Like just because space does it. Um, yeah. Um. I mean, you have to remember, like we're we're all human, and like that's you know that's to our our failings, our detriment, but also to our benefit. You know, you're going to have the things that energize you. And it's just like when someone asks me, uh, when a young person asks me, like, why do I have to learn math? Or why do I have to learn English? I already speak English. Or why do I have to? Like, well, here's the reason. Um, You are going to go out into the world and you are only going to have at your disposal your own brain and your own skills that you developed. And you have a choice. Like, are you going to develop a wide set of skills? Are you going to specialize? What are you going to specialize in? What sort of toolkit are you going to walk out into the world with? Um, when you engage in outreach or teaching or educational activities, uh, is that going to help your research directly? Probably not. But is your value defined by your research productivity and nothing else? Only if you define it that way will the things you're talking about be valueless. If you define the value of your own life through any other means, you know what? Other things matter too. When you get to the to the end of it and you look back all, at all of it, are you going to feel regret that you didn't spend an extra 10 or 20% of your resources working on your research? Or are you going to regret um, all the all the people you didn't pour enough love into or all the people whose lives you didn't touch because you were too busy for them or the people you left behind. Like, you you know, you think about when you get there, what are you really going to regret? And, And I would encourage you and everyone listening to live in ways that that you are proud of the actions you've taken and the choices you've made. Absolutely. And that's I mean, that speaks a bit to what we were um kind of talking about before with how we how you advocate for different movements and things and it's you know I I think yeah I think we do have a lot of issues in science with that kind of behavior right and with and with um that kind of that kind of plays into 
you know, something else we've been talking about off air, which was about the the way that graduate school uh, especially can can affect the mental health of uh, students and how it's, you know, it just, it, it does kind of try and monopolize your time in a way that is not necessarily healthy. Yeah, know? I mean, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't think we have time to get too deep into it, but I will share a story with you and with our, our listeners that uh, when I was in graduate school, um, my uh, my best friend from graduate school, um, I graduated in 2006 and in 2007, uh, he committed suicide. Wow. And, uh, you know, this is something where, um, look, I, I know it wasn't just graduate school, that was why he did it, um, but also uh, mental health in graduate school is a big problem in a lot of places. You have a lot of departments that don't recognize that mental health is real. You have a lot of students who need help with their mental health, who don't get it, who don't seek it, who worry about being stigmatized or branded as a, a difficult person or as weak. And, um, you know, I, I think that as we start to actually scientifically understand more about mental health, we we start to understand, look, this is something that most of us at some point in our life will have struggles with in one form or another, and that when that happens, it is not a failing on your part. Um, you... You know, you, you need to take care of yourself. It's sort of like uh, being on an airplane and the oxygen masks come down and they tell you to put on your own mask before helping others. Um, getting straight with your own mental health and reckoning with the difficult things that are happening in your life that you have to reckon with, particularly when they're occurring in an environment that has many toxic factors that you can't control. Um, Sometimes we all need help with those coping skills, and I'm happy to share that when I have needed that help, I have sought it and gotten it and taken advantage of what was available to me and at my disposal, and I would encourage everyone to do the same. You know, we we all have moments of strength and weakness, and we all have ways in which we, we rely on each other, and... We can't get through this successfully together if we if we deny these parts of our existence. You know, I think I think that there is undoubtedly a an epidemic of mental health problems, of suicide, of depression um, in graduate school, particularly in graduate school in physics and astronomy, although this I'm certain extends to other fields that I'm less knowledgeable about. Um, and, you know, I would encourage anyone who is struggling with their mental health, who is struggling with these issues, to not only talk to professionals about this, but to, to understand that that in graduate school, you know, it, it feels like there's so much pressure to be productive, to meet certain goals, to compare yourself to others. And I want to encourage you to keep a perspective that life is long and the only person you're running the race with is yourself and that you might go through times a year two years things like that where yeah it's bad for a time but i'll encourage all of you to look farther ahead and realize you have 40 50 maybe more good years in front of you um don't 
don't throw those away because what you're going through now is difficult. You you can survive this and and there are people out there who care about you and want to see you survive this and get through whatever challenge you're facing. Absolutely. That was really well said. And I think something that m- might be important to like any grad students listening is like I think we should be normalizing mental health. Um people don't talk about it enough and I know it's a really scary thing to talk about for a lot of people but so my my kind of you know you you shared your little your not little but you shared your kind of story about it like um mine is that I've had uh I've dealt with um a chronic anxiety disorder and pretty bad depression for about 15 years and I went into grad school already knowing my triggers already knowing my medications what I need to do my you know but that didn't that didn't make it any easier like I suffered a great deal in graduate school with mental health issues and but I was I've always been very open about it because I've never I don't know I don't know why you know because it's not like I came from anywhere where it was any less taboo to talk about but I'm just kind of an honest person in that respect and I realized that once I started talking about it to people that people would reach out to me and be like hey I'm struggling and it was a real privilege to be able to help those people and I, I hope I helped at least someone like I you know I would always kind of give the advice that I could give but obviously everyone comes you know everyone's mental health issues are different and, and none of them are trivial um, and and I hope that for a lot of uh, grad students who experience this that you know there are there are the the chronic anxiety issues that you know I, I know I probably will never be free of anxiety because it's a chemical imbalance as opposed to you know a, a, a situational one um, but you know, I, I really hope and pray for those those grad students who are experiencing it right now that it will get better after they graduate. And and I've seen it. I've seen it in people who I know who have graduated who, you know, seem a lot happier now and seem to really be experiencing life as they want to. And it's it's worth it. Just push, you know, and, and like don't be afraid to open up to someone that you trust. Find a support system, find a mentor, find someone that you can you can talk to. Like I literally I um, I, I said earlier, like one of the most badass people I know is, is Mary Beth the amount of times I've reached out to her and for help and she's always been there and like that is having that is a so so important you know and like I know no I know not everyone has that and you know sometimes that's really what it takes is just you know you said I wonder if I've had an impact on people like you know like trying to help them the way that others have helped me and you know I think just by even if all you did was you served as an ear for them, you listened to them and made them feel like their concerns and their feelings and what they were going through was valid. Uh, that can often be more help than you realize. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, I you know, I think amongst graduates, the one thing, um, you know, I, the, the kind of one thing in this respect that I took away from my graduate school experience was the other grads I, I worked alongside the, the kind of cohort I was in were insanely awesome people. Like, I think, I, I don't know if this is the same, I mean, it can't be the same in every department, obviously, but generally I think grad students are pretty good at sticking together. I don't know, is that is that specific to where I went? I'm not sure. Um, but you're all experiencing the same thing, you know, and you're all probably all experiencing imposter syndrome. I know I get that in spades. Um, you know. Yeah, probably- we, we might have talked about that a little bit on this podcast in front of everyone. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Like, it's a... Imposter syndrome is definitely, I think, and I don't think that ever really goes away, does it? 
you know, like, uh, it, no, you know, you always have those moments of self doubt. Like I get it too, where I'm like, Oh, should I really be talking about exoplanets? I've never studied exoplanets myself. Like, and then I'm like, you know, Ethan, like you have people in one field of exoplanets who share your articles about other fields of exoplanets. Like you, you like what clearer validation could you look for? And still I feel like, Oh, well, maybe I'm inadequate of doing this. And it's look like you're not alone in feeling that, but right, also like, I feel like we're 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 at the edge of the Dunning Kruger thing where we know so much that we recognize what we don't know and we're not as confident as the people who have like you know who who read like one article and think they know everything. Yeah, what is with that? Like what is with people on Facebook telling me that they, you know, know more about, I don't know, Alzheimer's than my friend who has a PhD in it? What is that about? Like mm. I don't think we're going to solve that issue today. <laughs> right. That's just like a pet peeve I have right now because I'm seeing it a lot with the COVID stuff, right? Yeah. People being like, oh, I saw this thing on Facebook about how, you know, masks cause cancer. I don't know, you know, like some some dumb thing. And it's like, oh, Facebook, great. Like, did you graduate from Facebook University? Like, Sorry. No, but I but I do like your. Uh, I assume that 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 voice you said that in. That's is that your imitation of an American accent? No, it's actually a <laughs> kind of an old British lady. I think I don't know. That wasn't very good. <laughs> that was that was. I like that voice. I that that's my that's my like person who is having a bitch about something they don't understand. Voice. I I'm very <laughs> bad at American accents, and I can't do one that won't offend someone. So I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just not gonna do that. Well. Jess, I, I do want to thank you for, for joining us and sharing what, what must be one of the most wide-ranging Starts With a Bang podcasts we've ever done. Uh, this was this was a lot of fun, and I think we raised a lot of important issues uh, well beyond uh, instrumentation, observations, and uh, issues on Mauna Kea and outreach, as well as astronomy. Um, so thank you for joining us. Do you have any final thoughts you would like to leave our listeners with before we go? would like to plug the nonprofit again yes please tell us about it it's always looking for funding um and it goes a long way we you know most of it's used to fly the kids out so they can have great experiences um and that can be accessed through our website or by i don't know if you'll put my email in the show notes but you know feel free to email me with any questions about that um or if you want to get involved in any way with that um and to all the graduate students out there like you've got this Oh, you've so got this. Like you're gonna smash it, and then like the next generation of grad students is gonna smash it, and then we're just gonna have this great utopia of like a super diverse science place. It's gonna be great. We got this. I love that message, <laughs> and thank you. And we will we will put uh, links to uh, to the Monkia Scholars Program and to uh, and to Jess's email if you want to get in touch with her um, about it uh, in the show notes in the uh, in the description on uh, on SoundCloud and everywhere this podcast can be found. Uh, so thank you to astronomer Jess Sean Hutstasek for being our guest on the podcast. Thanks to you for tuning in, and thanks to all of our Patreon supporters who make this podcast possible. I'd like to give a shout out and thanks by name to everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to 
Thomas Moore, Chad Marler, Jeffrey David Maricini, Samir Kumar, Matt Conroe, Chris Shaw, Tim Graham, Frank, John Methot, Aaron Weiss, Sean Foley, Pete Smoyer, Chris Jakutas, Stefan Berneger, Pierre Franson, Jean Van Balaguyan, Charles Buchanan, Dominic Turpin, Hellbender, Punitive Expedition, Pavel Zuzelski, Rob Hansen, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Vlad Pashkovsky, Sergei Gordienko, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Jens Kroger, Joseph Dvorak, Laird Whitehill, Mike, Ahmed Lee Kamsi, Alex Fedotov, Jerry Wilterding, Sean Foley, Flo, John Kuzura, Jose Enrique, Rafael Wojcik, Patrick Dennis, Denier, Danny, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Adam Robinson, Chuck Dannon, Paul Lester, Lalina Menenti, Gabriel Nader, Sam Serzakian, Jeff Renike, Tina Tallon, Rushin Shah, Inga Strumke, Alan Parikh, William Blair, Jason Luttrell, Paulina Barron, Dick Pills, Adrian Griffiths, Hannah Kahn, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, Arnulfo Zepeda, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Mark Bloor, Darren Redfern, Richard Schwartz, Fraser Kane, James Page, Steve Shaber, Naked Bunny with a Rip, Rich Weigel, James Nance, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, David Taschioni, Radek Nesbida, Nathan Hanna, Brainwise, Ken Blackman, Benhead, Tomas Walgren, and that's it. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and we'll see you next time here for more Starts With a Bang. <laughs> <laughs>